Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Megan Ward is an outdoor travel and adventure writer and a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Megan has written several books as well as produced content for films, anthology, blogs, and some of North America's top outdoor fitness and adventure publications. The most recent book is a memoir called Lights to Guide Me Home, which Megan and I talked about on a previous show. This time we're talking to Megan about her part in a documentary film called Wildflowers. Welcome back, Megan. Thank you so much for having me back. What is Wildflowers and where did the idea come from? Okay, Wildflowers is a short documentary film about a Rockies trailblazer named Mary Schaefer Warren. And uh, she was just such an incredible figure, not just in Rockies history, but I think in like potentially even North American history. And we, our, our team of filmmakers felt that she had a rather overlooked story and she has so much to contribute to the world. And as we've been exploring her story historically, we've also come across some themes that tie us to her, despite the fact that we're living a century apart. So Wildflowers is actually exploring themes around identity and life transition um, as they pertain to Mary as a mountain writer from the early 20th century and me as a mountain writer here in 2023. And I mean, obviously, the role she took back in the early 1900s was very untraditional, unusual for a woman. How much is that a part of what attracted you to the story? Certainly, it was a big piece that initially attracted me to Mary Schaefer. Yes, she was rather unconventional and bucked a lot of Victorian-era conventions. Not only was she, you know, this mountain explorer who rode on horseback for 8,000 miles in the Canadian Rockies, uh, she just was a real force of nature in all aspects of life. And as I've been learning through my research with her story, you know, in various stages of her life, she was quite unconventional, quite outspoken, quite inspiring, but also very opinionated. In so many ways, she was really ahead of her times. This part of the film recreated one of her trips, correct, from her 1908 expedition. Yes, to to some degree. So in 1908, uh, Mary Schaefer Warren set off with a group of five others, including one other woman named Molly Adams, in search of this very elusive uh, lake called the Maline Lake or Chaba Imne in the Stony Nakoda language. And it had not, it was not undiscovered. Other um, people had been there before and certainly it was the ancestral homeland of numerous indigenous groups. And so it was well known amongst uh, those peoples, but it was largely unmapped. No uh, non-indigenous women had really ventured into this area before. And so it was quite remarkable that Mary and Molly set off on this expedition. So they went from what is present day Lake Louise up to Maline Lake in Jasper National Park. It was a, you know, largely uh, a multi-week expedition. Uh, but considering our lives here and the, the logistics of escaping for that long, 
our team decided to recreate the last week of her journey, which took us from the Icefields Parkway through the backcountry for four days on foot to Maline Lake, where we switched to canoes. And that was definitely inspired by Mary's story. I just find it fascinating that east of Canmore, and nobody knows who this woman is. And I think, yeah, I think that's part of what, you know, of course, what drew me to her story was this unconventional woman. I mean, very few women were doing what Mary Schaefer Warren was doing. But I also grew up in Ottawa. I had no idea of her contributions in in terms of being this trailblazer for, for, for women. And, and then later in life, she was also integral to having Maline Lake included in Jasper National Park uh, when they redrew those boundaries for the park, which also had some negative repercussions for the Indigenous people who lost access to their hunting grounds. So there's this kind of double-edged thing going on there. And that was, she was part of this protection of this wilderness so that it couldn't be overly commercialized and built on and developed but it had negative repercussions for our Indigenous people. What's it like making a film? Oh, my. (laughs) You know, I've always said you could write a book about writing a book, and you could make a film about making a film. We have been in this process. Uh, My co-producer is Trixie Passis. She's an emerging filmmaker out of Kimberley, BC. We've been in this process since November 2021. And... You know, it starts with a seed of an idea. And I wasn't even originally in the film. I was just the researcher writer. I was just like, yeah, sure. I've been studying Mary Schaefer's life for 20 years. I've lived in Banff. I lived across the street from her historic home. I had all these connections. And then as we started writing grant applications and starting to really hone in on the story, we realized we needed that modern day touch point for our audience. Otherwise, all we would have to rely on was archival footage. There's no video footage of Mary Schaefer, but she left behind a record of photographs and artwork and writing. And so it's just been a roller coaster of a process. I don't even know if roller coaster is extreme enough to describe the ups and downs of the process that we've been through to date. Even just getting the camping permits to move through the Moline River Valley. So when Mary went, You know, it was just, they were walking on what she called old Indian trails. They were, you know, very rarely visited by any settler population. And, but she had this full access. There was nothing preventing her from going anywhere. And, uh, you know, other than some tree fall. But our group discovered that Jasper National Park um, has made this area a kind of restricted area and that, They don't do this in all aspects of the park, but due to the grizzly population there that they're working to to protect, they give only one camping permit per campground per night. So at any given time, there can only really legally be about 20 people on this 40 kilometer stretch of trail. So we had to have like a booking bonanza in, you know, May of this past year, got six friends to help us get on the Parks Canada reservation system as soon as it opened. And then the first person who got in the queue, you know, was like, okay, I'm in, what do I do? What do I do? And it happened to be one of our, you know, one of our 
tenants in our who lives in our basement suite. So I literally ran from my bedroom upstairs, <laughs> ran from my bedroom all the way downstairs, and we're all on this Zoom call. So I disappear from one window and I, I appear in the next, and I log in with my information. And you know, we had dates established. You know, if we can't get these dates, we'll get these dates. It was insanity, and so you know, it was so remarkable that we we had a harder time just logistically getting into this valley but we were so grateful because as more and more people come to the rockies we were relatively alone for four days yeah that's that's part i hadn't thought of i hadn't thought of the access the restriction and access that started in a lot of the national parks now again filmmaking is so different i have a little bit of a background that's what i went to school for and it's so different because you have to plan things and i guess writing similar i mean you plan things in your writing as well but you know, you're hauling stuff, you're setting up shots, you're doing all this stuff. How how different is that an experience while you're trying to get from point A to point B in the wilderness too? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I I think I'm not entirely new to filmmaking. No, yeah, I've been that, part yeah. of a variety of small projects, but this I've done nothing quite like this. <laughs> and then of course, uh, my my partner is a photographer. And so I'm very familiar with the interrupted cadence of getting from A to B where you get somewhere and then you're like, okay, can you go over here? Can you go over here? Can you, you know, get to this edge of this cliff and pose for me or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm very familiar with needing to kind of make time to stop and do the work. And the nature of a documentary film is really lovely in that way. So you are planning a little bit. Um, and we'd, we'd done extensive research in particular for this backcountry portion. I had researched the trail as best as I could, knowing it was a decommissioned trail. The conditions were variable, almost no bridges in place for stream crossings or the crossing over the Moline river. I think we did what we could to, pr- to prepare, but we were largely just capturing things as they unfolded. And there were times that our cinematographer, her name is Anandi Bronstein, would, you know, let us know she saw something she wanted to stop. But her job was really to capture this organic experience that was transpiring. And, you know, my job as the historian was to kind of educate my my fellow castmates. Uh, We had a writer named Jane Marshall and a photographer named Nat Gillis on the trip as well both very talented women in their own crafts. And, you know, I had the the fun experience of giving them a window into Mary's experience. And we had her book with us on the trail so we could read from it. We took repeat photos. We, we had several of her photos from 1908 printed in our collection to bring on the trail. And then that actually created new photos in those same locations. And so while we were planning, and there are a lot of logistics, and it's not easy to get an alpine start with camera gear. And I know Anandi's doing her best to like get sorted in the morning. And I mean, I was just in awe of her organizational skills and her experience she brought on to a backcountry trail with filmmaking. But there were also some considerable challenges in play just figuring out the best course of action sometimes and, you know, having to mitigate some parts of the trail that we didn't know would be a complete bushwhack hmm. um, where you're hauling gear like through 
very thick down, sure. you know, like trees down, shrubs. Um, and it was, it was certainly an adventure. Were there any bugs? No. Really? We had the most bug-free summer in the Rockies I've ever experienced, which might well, also that's, that's be due to the lack of rain. It, it was really? like a magical summer that, wow. and, and we, you know, we had our own share of discomfort on the Moline expedition in particular with, um, we had like a lot of cold and rain when we first started and it's, yeah. it's hard to be motivated in those conditions, but no, no bugs. <laughs> no bugs. Wow. That, that is a really good thing. So what stage of development are we at now with the film? So Wildflowers has been in filming and production since 2021, which has taken us into the backcountry twice. The first time was on horseback. We followed Mary's uh, horse trails into the Skokie Valley. Um, we've been in the White Museum archives five or six times. We've been to Mary's historic home. And then behind all that, we're, we're researching, we're writing, and then as co-producers, we're also largely looking for financing because these things just can't be made with nothing. Unfortunately, filmmaking is quite an expensive process and we really believe strongly as a team in paying creatives what they're worth. And so when we've contracted and hired people, we are you know, paying the rates that they're requesting as much as we possibly can. But we've spent a good deal of time hustling working with uh, corporate sponsors on financial and in-kind sponsorship. We've been so grateful for the people who've come on board, some individual donors. But we largely find ourselves at the midway of our process creatively. So we've got all the footage. We just need to work on the editing. And that requires a colorist and hopefully some kind of animator, perhaps a composer. There's also distribution and marketing. And so... To make up some of that deficit, we were working on a variety of grant applications and we were you know, shortlisted for many. We applied for about a dozen. And at the end of the day, we came away with one small grant, which we're very grateful for from the Columbia Kootenai Cultural Alliance. But we are facing a pretty big deficit in moving into our post-production. And so we have actually now launched a crowdfunding campaign to help bring it across the finish line. It's it's so tough, isn't it? Like, I mean, any of the artistic endeavors, especially difficult sometimes. And when you're doing a film, it's the difference between a, hmm, yeah, we got it done, and something that's really extraordinary, correct? Like, that's that's where this fundraising comes. It's not that you couldn't finish it. You could find a way to finish it. But if you want to finish it the way you want to finish it, you're going to need some help. Yeah, you've touched on something really important there is, yeah, you, you know, you can make a film on $5,000 and it'll be what it is. I think our team has been looking to do something bigger and, you know, more creative and more original, not only because we have our own personal creative standards, but also because those things also help potentially reach a wider audience with the themes that we're exploring through Mary Schaefer's story. So by by creating a film that, you know, is kind of like our dream film. It's a dream for us, but it's also going to open up some opportunities for wider distribution. And, you know, we, we think there's also a real educational value to this film 
and bringing Mary's story into the greater greater consciousness, and also, you know, we're we're looking really closely at some some really challenging themes. One being that we believe it's really important to honor this trailblazer and honor these trailblazers in our lives, but as much as Mary was really ahead of her time, she was also a real product of her times. And in her writing, she, you know, used some colonial, very racist language. She was a real, she was ahead of her times in her, her interest and fascination with crossing those cultural boundaries. But she also, you know, couldn't get past that bias she had, that colonial bias. And and I think it's something that I've been really wrestling with in my own life. And in the last few years, doing a lot of really personal work as a, you know, an eighth generation descendant of settlers to this land we call Canada. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of work um, just educating myself and reading. Uh, I've done, there's an open course at the University of Alberta called Indigenous Canada that any anybody can take uh, completed this year as part of that education. But we've also been reaching out to the local Indigenous communities to try to create some ties and get some answers from their side because Mary writes about very specific people, in particular, a man named Samson Beaver who came from the Iyahe Nakoda or Stony Nakoda. And uh, he had provided Mary Schaefer with ultimately a map to Chaba Imne or Maline Lake based on his memories from his youth. And we have Mary's depiction of this exchange, but we don't have anything from his side. And so while we're honoring our trailblazers, we're also really identifying these areas where we need to blaze a new trail as people. And it's 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 in the spirit of, of reconciliation, sure, but it's also just setting this historic record straight and, you know, not telling the same stories over and over. There's so many themes. And one of the themes I think is reinvention. I think you guys are touching on that a little bit as well, right? Yeah, Mary Schaefer Warren, you know, actually what's so interesting is her name is written many different ways in different writings because she went through several reinventions. And so Mary Schaefer, she was... Uh, married to a man named Charles Schaefer who passed away when she was 43 in 1903. And that's what really prompted her to start venturing off the beaten track and uh, reinvented herself as a mountain explorer. It's a really interesting part of her story. And in the process of doing so, she hired a guide named Billy Warren, who, you know, about 12 years later became her husband. um, And she was 20 years older than him. So that's where the Warren comes from. And so you'll often see her name written a few different ways, depending on what stage of life she was in. And so she's someone who not only reinvented herself in 1904, 1903, but her her mountain career as an adventurer really only lasted about eight years. And then she reinvented herself again. And I think what's significant about it was her reinventing herself, you know, in her 40s is both quite an interesting thing to, to think about, but as her biographer, Janice Sanford Beck, actually reflected on our interview together, she also said, you know, it, it makes sense. It's a, a very natural time of life to be looking at yourself more closely and, you know, looking at your future and who do I want to be? How do I want to show up in this world? And it's something that as I look at my 40th in February, I am certainly thinking about so this was something that really brought Mary and me together 
in a really interesting way. Forty's <laughs> nothing. Don't worry about forty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do think though that there's a there's quite a lot of cultural messaging around forty. Oh, there is. To, no, it's crazy. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah, <laughs> and especially especially as women. Um, yes, I, I mean, and I, and I that's couldn't say especially. Different. Maybe it's just like a different flavor. No, but no. There's, I, more, I think, there's different expectations on the way we're supposed to look as we get older, on not looking older, on you. Yeah. You know, you already have a problem to fix if you're aging, and it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's just life. And it and it and it is women. Guys don't face that problem. I'm gray. Women call it silver, and That's I've true. never had a I've never had a guy come up to me and call it silver ever. <laughs> I, I'd actually like to tell you a little funny story about that because um, Mary Schaefer was a photographer and as were several members of her 1908 expedition team. So they had a camera and, and a lot of the credit is shared with her and Molly, but there are some photos that we know were taken by other members of her team. So uh, okay. when we're crediting her photos, we're looking more at like her collection, but she would have these printed, like printed on these glass plates that she hand painted. And then she took those on the road with slideshows, like, and she even would send her slides. She sent her slides overseas during the first world war to bring cheer to the soldiers who were over there. And some of them were, you know, known as the Banff boys. Banff had about 50 men who perished in the war. And for a town of a thousand people at the time, it was pretty yeah. significant. But why I bring up this story with regards to gray hairs is Mary so conveniently like painted this like very nice brown hair on herself. And <laughs> I was like, I wonder, like, that's an interesting choice. Like, I wonder where she was at. And, you know, did she hand tint the brown back into her hair at the age of 44? I don't know. You know, it's, it's funny how the themes that bind two people uh, so persistent over time. Mm -hmm. Now, did she ever? Have any, she, she she never had any children, right? No. Um, okay. From what I've gathered, we don't know why. Other than mm. you know, to some degree, you know, her first husband was two decades older than her. I don't know if they you know had ever tried or if it was something that they you know were had just he had decided that he didn't want. Like I don't have any information. And right. then by the time she was with Billy. Um, she was in her, you know, fifties, fifties, basically, but she does, she does write about it a little bit. Um, she was very close to one of her nephews who actually, um, died in world war one. He had enlisted at the age of 15 that really, she does write quite a lot about him and she, you know, she kind of, she definitely laments the fact that she never had kids. One thing, though, that she's known for and you know, part of her reinvention as a community member here in Banff when she finally moved to Banff in, in about around 1913 from um, Pennsylvania was that she started having these games nights for the local youth. And so people would you know, show up at her house on Sundays and play bridge. And she, you know, she was a good house that she would never play, but she was there to facilitate. And she loved the young people. So it tells me that she was a mother at heart and, yeah. you know, that's all I've been able to glean. <laughs> so let's get back to the fundraising. How can people help? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Um, I'm guessing that maybe you can pop the link in your show notes for people. Can I will do. <laughs> we also have a website set up at wildflowersfilm.ca where people can find the information, not just about the crowdfunding, but about the film and our journey. There's some, um, and it's good. It's a good visit. Thank you. We've put a lot of work into it to make it interactive and we've provided some resources and everything from our indigenous resources to our library that we're leaning into, um, to like little, uh, an expedition recap from the Moline river Valley trip. But, uh, we're currently, uh, running a campaign on Indiegogo. And as of today, we're about 53% of the way to our goal, which nice. is phenomenal. Uh, but our goal is truly representative of what we need. And so when we say we're aiming to raise 25,000, yeah, we've done the number crunching. We know that this will really help us create a great film. And the reality is, is the dream film is actually in excess of that. And so it feels like a big ask in this day and age, in the month of December, when we know that there's a lot of demands on people's finances and things like that. But what we're really looking for is the smaller donations, just as much as the big ones, because even a 10 or $20 donation helps us push that needle. And the, the closer we get to our goal, it entices other people to contribute. And there's a real psychology to crowdfunding that if people don't see progress, they're less inclined to give. And we're really confident we'll reach our goal but we can't if people hold back because they think, well, what's $20 going to do? So people can contribute directly. They can also just share the link and share it with friends and family who love to support the arts, love to hear about women-powered stories, women writing about women, women, women filmmaking about women, Canadian history. And it's, uh, there's, I think there's a lot in there that people there's something different in there for everyone. People will feel drawn to different parts of the story that we're telling. And I hope that that compels them to want to share about the project. It is really a really great story. We should talk a little bit about her photography, I think. What do you think her goal was with her photography? I've seen a lot of the images, but when it comes to the photography, there's a book called Searching for Mary Schaefer women wilderness photography by Colleen Skidmore. And she has looked at Mary Schaefer's photographic work in depth. She offers a more academic approach to the work. It would be a wonderful resource if people want to learn more about Mary's photography from that standpoint. But I've spent a lot of time with Mary's photos I've, you know, I've asked a lot of questions like, oh, what prompted her to stop in that moment and capture that image? And, and was it just a matter of, okay, we actually, it's convenient because, <laughs> you know, the camera that she took was actually quite compact. I've seen it for myself at the, at the White Museum. Um, it's not one of those huge box cameras. And I know that the standards have changed over time of what we consider to be a, a good image and all of that. But she had a really good eye. And part of it is we don't know exactly which images she always took versus yeah. some of the other members of her team. But it really looked like she was aiming to, to document her experience. And she was a real storyteller. I love that something that's always connected her and I is she not only experienced these things, but she wanted to try to find a way to tell the world about them. So she did that through writing and through Old Indian Trails of the Canadian Rockies, which she published in 1911. And in that book were a variety of these photographs. 
And then she also did these slideshows and she told stories about all these journeys. So I think she really felt inclined to document for the sake of also sharing. And we also had <laughs> photographer Nat Gillis um, on the trip with us to recreate six or seven of these historic images. So we actually felt that we were doing some some really interesting work historically because we went that is cool. back to these exact spots. And what was really cool was it, it unfolded as we're walking. So, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> we knew that one of these photos was taken at the Moline Pass but right. the morning that we woke up, there was snow on the mountains. The ceiling was very low. And we're like at the pass and looking at the image and looking at the contour lines and, you know, the just the little features on the peaks to see if we were in the right spot. And thankfully, we decided to wait because after about an hour, the clouds lifted and we were like, oh, we're here. We're, he we're at the was, shot. Yeah. And in Mary's shot, there's, uh, there's horses, people on horseback riding through the same landscape or hmm. when we got down into the valley where now it's overgrown with willows and it's it's rather wild down there um hmm. you know it was still quite rugged when mary would have been there but she got to what is now present day schaefer campground and in her photo there's tea peoples <laughs> and she you know always took it as a cue from the indigenous people ah this is a good place to camp for a reason and so we we were able to also document some elements of climate change with the, you know, yeah. the the tree line moving up the mountains. And then one of our the last photo we we recreated was of there's a picture of the raft from 1908 floating, you know, in front of Mount Unwin, which is a heavily glaciated peak at the time. And we recreated that so that Jane and I were in a canoe and we paddled through the shot while Nat took it. And you can see the changes in the mountains. The you can see the glaciers receding. Well, just talking about it makes me think in my head of a couple that I've taken, you know, only a decade apart, not a hundred years apart, mm -hmm. but just a decade apart and how much they've changed. So what does the final film look like for you if you get your dream film? Well, I'm a co-producer and I, I certainly have some ideas and it's also a very collaborative process. Um, yeah. with uh, our director, Trixie. And of course, the, you know, when we bring in an editor and that team, that people will bring their own flavor to it. But I think what we've you know, mutually agreed that we're, we're aiming for is to be able to showcase all of the, the, you know, the places that we've been gathering this footage that build these kind of puzzle pieces of our efforts to get to know Mary because we can't meet her. So... There, there, there's, there's those elements, the visual elements of all these, these things that we've done, these places we've been, those, those things where you, you know, you want to show, don't tell necessarily. We also have the odd thread we're still pulling on. So while we've wrapped filming, um, we are in the process of also working to establish greater connections with some of the indigenous people who might be able to provide perspective. You know, that takes a lot of nurturing and trust and we do hope to eventually be able to put something on camera to be able to document these conversations but it's not something it's not up to us we can do our best to try to build that trust and largely it's about sitting back and listening and not trying to control the outcome and not trying to control the process 
And so it almost works against a lot of the ways that films often come together, right? You, you, like you said, you, you have to organize, you have to plan. We can't plan. So we're just ready and willing and waiting for when this process might come to pass. And hopefully it'll happen before we truly have to wrap. So we would also really love this component. And then we'd really love to work with artists to create original music and some original artwork for the film would be a dream to work with an indigenous artist who can help bring in some of these visual elements and just really bring the story to life in, a, in an original way. And as a film, like you said, there's so many people involved that all have some say, not as much, obviously it's not the same for everyone, but so how different is that for you? It's very different um, to have worked so intensely on a project that was really largely dependent on myself. To... And very personal. And very personal. <laughs> yeah. To working on a, pro a project like the film that's also very personal. I think it's gotten yeah. very personal at times, very vulnerable. But you're doing it with others. As a producer, you're also helping to manage people and, you know, on the trail like just making sure everyone's happy and healthy and feeling good and feeling supported and then really at the mercy of a lot of other players in this because we're you know collaborating with the the white museum here and and they've been so wonderful with helping us with imagery and licensing and all the things that that could be so prohibitive but you know the the archivists there are just such champions of this project and and then other roadblocks we faced were, you know, sometimes we're dealing with bureaucracy and that we're just at their mercy, which is a little bit why we're also launching this campaign in December. Um, but that's all part of it. I think when you're, when you open yourself up to a very collaborative process, the potential for things to be out of your control is just that much greater. So there's a lot of knowing when to sit back and knowing when to push when to poke when to just say okay i'm gonna take the bull by the horns well and, and the, the writing skills certainly play a role in filmmaking yeah, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of you know there's a lot of those skills that i've been leaning into it's yeah, more the personal I mean. skill it's sorry it's more the personal skills i was thinking because as a writer you're 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 creating it you're researching it you're you know producing it it does and i think it's about bringing the right people in. And oh, yeah, no. I think yeah. that we've been very intentional about bringing people into the project who, one, just align with the values and the the vision that we have for telling this story. And, and then also we've just brought in, like, an enormous amount of talent. I think people will see that if they check out the trailer on Indiegogo. You know, we've we've definitely brought in some of the best in the industry to help us bring this story to life, and that takes a lot of pressure off of you know some of those dynamics you're describing. Thanks, Megan. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode of Northern Latitudes. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can always stay connected on all the major podcast platforms. Just search for Northern Latitudes and hit that subscribe button to ensure you never miss an episode. For even more content, including our photo gallery, visit the website at northernlatitudes.ca. Until next time, 
I'm Bill Alt from Northern Latitudes.